0: Welcome to this week's podcast, at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the elders here at BPC. Uh, Last week, I started a series. It's going to be a three-part series, but last week we had part one on the subject of faith and, and doubt. So we're gonna pick up that series again today. I'm gonna be in the book of Mark, so Mark's uh, gospel account. Now last week, I had started us off with a little bit of a history lesson, if you were here, We went back to the fourth century BC, uh, Alexander the Great, all that stuff. I'm gonna start us off with another little history lesson this week. Since I'm on a roll here, uh, we'll do this again. This time I wanna take you to, um, well, to the 17th century, and we're gonna go to France. Uh, Blaise Pascal, the famous French philosopher, mathematician, uh, scientist, theologian, inventor, pretty much jack of all trades. In fact, I got to see the first calculator that Pascal had invented in Clermont-Ferrand in France a few years ago um, in a museum. It was marvelous to see this machine that he had come up with, uh, even back in the the 17th century, 1600s. So interesting guy, Uh, the guy was a genius, but one thing he noticed in Paris during his lifetime is that a lot of the people around him were really just agnostic about about God. Uh, They were indifferent, they just didn't seem to care. Uh, It's not that they were hostile toward belief in God or, or, or the Christian faith, but they just really weren't interested. The evidence didn't convince them one way or another. And so Pascal developed an argument for belief that came to be known as Pascal's wager. Maybe you've heard of this argument, the wager argument. Now the wager is not an argument for the existence of God. Rather, the wager is an argument for the rationality of belief in the existence of God. So it's an argument for belief. So, using basic probability theory and a kind of decision-theoretic matrix, which Pascal also developed, uh, probability theory, um, he argued that it is prudentially advantageous to believe in God even if the evidence isn't decisive one way or another. So here's the argument. If you put your faith in God, but it turns out at the end of your life that God doesn't exist and that the gospel isn't true, you lose very little. Maybe you wasted a few hours in church, you wasted a few hours praying, that sort of thing, but really you come out at the end and you didn't lose much. If, however, you put your faith in God and his gospel and it turns out he does exist, well, you gain eternity. Eternity in the presence of God, right? Salvation. So belief is usually, or I would say is a good thing, according to Pascal. On the other hand, if you disbelieve in God and it turns out he doesn't exist, really all you've gained is a few extra carnal pleasures by living a godless life, right? Maybe a few extra parties, a little bit more debauchery than normal, but not much of really anything. Worst case, if you disbelieve in God and it turns out he does exist, you lose everything. And you're cast into eternal hell. So, as Pascal reasoned, of all the outcomes, of all the possibilities, the best thing to do is to put your faith in God. Believe in God. The outcome's gonna be better. So, this was an argument against uh, atheism, against agnosticism. Now, this is not the point of the sermon, okay? Um, A lot of ink has been spilled in evaluating this argument. I'm not gonna go into any more detail on it. In fact, according to Nicholas Rescher, a philosopher of of Pascal, uh, his wager and and other theories related to his philosophy, uh, most theologians treat the argument with lofty disdain. Most philosophers consider it a professional obligation to hate this argument. So we're not going to get into evaluating it anymore. But my point here is it brings up some very good questions about the nature of belief and doubt. Can you make yourself believe in God voluntarily? Can you conjure up belief in God by your own volition? How much certainty do you need in order to maintain faith in God? Can you lose your belief in God once you have it And perhaps most importantly, how do we maintain faith in God when the world seems to be crashing down around us? Pain, suffering, all of this stuff, and God seems absent at times. So it does bring up some interesting questions about the nature of of faith and doubt, and that's where we wanna go uh, today. Um, As we go to Mark chapter nine, I wanna explore some of these questions. In Mark nine, we're actually going to meet a man who's wrestling with these kinds of of issues in his own life. I believe, I think I believe, I'm not sure I believe, I need help believing, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. That's what we see in Mark 9. So we're gonna go to the scripture. And um, before we read it, let me just mention something. Bergen Park Church is part of an association of churches known as the Evangelical Free Church. Of America. And in our statement of faith, we read that as the verbally inspired Word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings, the complete revelation of His will for salvation, and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. We take the Bible very seriously here, uh, the preaching of the Word uh, very seriously. If you tamper with God's Word, all of the other doctrines fall. Uh, or are weakened, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of atonement, all of that stuff falls. So we we uphold what God's word says. Now, when we come to Mark 9, understand the context here. Jesus has been up on the mountain with three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, his inner circle. And they have witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus, where Jesus is glorified uh, before their eyes, And so they're coming down from the mountain, the other nine disciples have been left behind, and this is where uh, we come to uh, our reading today, verses 14 through 29 of Mark 9. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. But whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him but prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this opportunity this morning to open your word, to read what it says, and to allow your Holy Spirit uh, to convey, to, to show us the meaning of this passage. We ask, Lord, that you would guide us in this study, help us to see things that we have not seen before, to be renewed in our faith and our knowledge of you, and to put these things into practice for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the story we just read illustrates really the complexity of belief, of Christian belief. See the climax of the story isn't really the miracle itself. I think what we need to see here is that the the climax of the story is this interaction that takes place between Jesus and the father of the demon-possessed boy. Really verses 22 through 24, are at the center of the story. So as I mentioned previously, the story picks up following the transfiguration of Jesus. So Jesus and his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, are returning from the mountain, and they find this kind of, well, you could say tempestuous crowd, right? And the reason for the perturbation, according to verses 17 and 18, seems to be centered on the fact that the nine other disciples are unable to heal this demon-possessed boy. This father has brought the boy to them and they are unable to cast the demon out. Now, bear in mind that prior to this, the disciples have already had experience with healing, with casting out demons. If you go back to chapter 6 of Mark, you'll see that Jesus has already sent out the disciples in power to perform miraculous signs and wonders. So it seems strange here that they're unable to heal this boy, but their inability to heal him is explained later in verses 28 and 29. Jesus says that this particular demonic influence cannot be overcome apart from prayer. Some translations will also add the word fasting, which appears in later manuscripts. And so when we're developing uh, modern translations of Scripture, generally scholars are going to look at the earliest Uh, Texts that we have in the Greek language. Um, Some of the older or or the the newer texts will add words from time to time. So some versions of our modern Bible will say, and fasting. Okay, but it's not really too important here. Um, The idea, really, what this means is that the disciples may have actually forgotten the power by which miraculous signs are performed. Right? Our authority over the spirit world is tied to Christ Jesus, who has all power and all authority. This is why when you go to passages like Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God, it says put on the armor of God, Right, not the armor of man, the armor of God. The power, the authority is in God. This is why when you go to the great commission in Matthew 28, Jesus sends his disciples out in his authority, in his power to preach the gospel and to baptize the nations. So Jesus has gone up onto the mountain for the transfiguration and it may simply be that these nine other men have forgotten the power, the authority by which they are to cast out demons. We lose our effectiveness when we take our eyes off from God, off from Christ. So back to the boy. The demonic spirit in the story has caused muteness and seizures. Now, in our modern kind of scientific minds, we want to attribute the boy's muteness and seizures to epilepsy or some sort of other probably psychological or neurological condition, right? Right? But bear in mind that scripture recognizes a demonic influence at play. Okay, there's no doubt here that this is a demon that has caused this. So we're not going to dismiss this as a mere physiological or psychological problem, okay? Um, We're not going to be embarrassed by the reality of a spiritual or immaterial world, the immaterial world is a very real thing. Jesus is creator of both the material and the immaterial realities around us, and he has power over these realities. That's the point. Now, I hope you can appreciate the desperation and really the frustration of this father as he comes to Jesus with his precious child who has been tormented from a very young age with this demon. This is probably not the first time this man has sought help doctors, holy men, nobody's been able to help this boy. And so when the father hears about this Jesus of Nazareth, he hears the stories of the miracles and the power, he's excited to come to Jesus and and, and experience that for himself, for his own child. So no doubt he's disappointed when these nine disciples are unable to perform the miracle. This has to create quite a bit of frustration for this man. Probably much more than mere disappointment. Now, we've all experienced disappointment in life, right? I'm disappointed by a lot of things in life. I'm disappointed that my team, the Minnesota Vikings, has lost four Super Bowls and they can't quite seem to get back up on top and win. That disappoints me. I'm disappointed when I put a slice of leftover pizza in the refrigerator with the hope of coming back to it later and find that one of my children or somebody else has gotten there first and devoured it. That's disappointing. I'm disappointed that I spent 11 years in France and not once did I ever hear a French person go, ha, 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 right? (laughs) Apparently the French don't actually do that. That's just something we see in cartoons and, jokes and that sort of thing, disappointment, right? We've all dealt with disappointment, but this is another level. This father is no doubt experiencing despair at this point, emotional anguish as he watches his son suffer. He's watched him suffer helplessly, and so he comes to Jesus Christ. He's a man of faith, clearly, but his faith is being tested here. So I want to point out three things about the nature of Christian belief that we see in this passage, this, this contrast between faith and, and doubt. And understand that the Greek word for belief in this text, the word that Mark is using here is the word pistuo. This is a word that is translated today as belief. Sometimes we translate it as faith. It's the word from which we derive uh, epistemology, that is the theory or the study of of knowledge. So there's a lot of nuance in this word, knowledge, belief, faith, and I really wanna help us get to the heart of what's going on uh, in this passage. So verses 22 and 23, let's take a look at that. Uh, Christian belief is about relationship with God. That's what we see in those verses. This man has come to Jesus, and in verse 22 it says, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. If you can do anything. See, the conditional here, the conditional if in the man's question denotes that he thinks Jesus might either be incapable, as the disciples were, or maybe unwilling to heal his son, if you can. But notice that Jesus reverses the condition Do you see that? It's not a matter of if God can, but if the man is willing to believe that God can. Jesus is essentially inviting the man into a relationship of trust. It's not, can I do it? It's, do you trust me to do it? Now, I would urge us to be careful here. Uh, the, The thing to understand is that God doesn't require belief in order to act. God does not require our belief in order to act. It's not like his power is dependent on belief. Now I do understand that there are passages in the New Testament that talk about how Jesus would not perform a miracle in a particular place because of the lack of faith of the people. But understand that those are particular instances where Jesus is interacting with a people and and inviting them into faith. Okay, so if people stop believing in God, it's not as if he'll slowly fade away and cease to exist. That's sometimes the image we have of God. We probably derive that from popular culture from some of the movies we watch. I was thinking about that movie, Elf. It's a Christmas movie where Santa's sleigh doesn't fly or work correctly because not enough children believe in him and there's no Christmas spirit and people aren't singing Christmas songs and and that sort of nonsense. That's how we sometimes view God. If we don't believe enough, he might just disappear. He may not be able to do miracles. Understand that God doesn't work that way. God is real. Okay, he's the most real thing in all of reality, he is the center of all reality. He is the self-existing exister who exists regardless of our belief about him. God is able to act independent of what we believe about him. So Jesus is not pleading with this man to have a little bit of belief so that the belief can be converted into some sort of magic miracle dust that's then used to heal the boy, okay? That's not the idea. Understand that when Jesus invites belief in verse 23, he's inviting this man into a relationship of trust where the man gets the privilege of believing in Jesus and Jesus can respond to that belief by healing the boy. He wants to heal the boy and more importantly, he wants the heart the soul and the mind of the father. He wants relationship. This isn't about belief in the possibility of a miracle, okay? This is about belief in the miracle giver himself. Christian belief is about relationship with God. Now, the second thing Mark communicates through this story is that Christian belief can sometimes be a fluid, ever-changing, but hopefully ever-growing kind of thing, Faith, belief changes over time in the Christian life. Verse 24 is one of the most honest, profound, and perhaps haunting expressions of faith in all of scripture. I believe, help my unbelief. See, the father of the demon-possessed boy is expressing his anguished faith, bound up in desperation, bound up in love for his son. He's caught somewhere between a perfect confidence in Jesus and a kind of faltering, wavering attempt at faith. Do you see that? Mark's account of this man's faith really captures the nuance of the great ability of belief. And what I mean by the great ability of belief is that confidence, the confidence with which we hold a belief, can be affected at times by the stakes involved in that belief. As the stakes go up, Sometimes our certainty goes down a little bit. As we encounter new information, as we wrestle with our emotions, beliefs can change a little bit. Consider this. Imagine you're driving your car down I-70 from Evergreen to Denver. It's a beautiful day. The sun is shining. There's no other traffic on the road. Can you imagine that? You've got the entire interstate to yourself. Beautiful day. Now, if I were to ask you, are you confident you believe that the brakes on your car are working correctly? No doubt you'd say, well, yeah, they're, they're fine. You probably wouldn't even really think about it, right? You'd just take it for granted. Everything's fine, it's a beautiful day. How, how could there be a problem? Let's imagine a more realistic scenario, okay? You're, you're on I-70, driving from Evergreen down To Denver in the middle of a snowstorm in heavy truck traffic, and you have a vehicle loaded with children, maybe your own children, maybe the children of a a friend or or family member. Now, if I were to ask you about your confidence in the belief that your brakes are working well, you might hesitate this time, right? The, The stakes have gone up. Maybe your confidence has gone down a little bit. You might answer, I think so, but I'm not really sure. You see, as the stakes change, so does our confidence in the beliefs we hold. New evidence, lack of information, emotional distress, all of these things can affect our confidence, right? So the confidence, uh, let's see here. Yeah, you know, the confidence with which we hold beliefs about God might it might actually just ebb and flow a little bit based on our circumstances. So what's important in this is that we know where to turn when our faith does waver. That that's really the point here. Where do we turn when our confidence wanes a little bit? Rather than feed doubt, we need to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus Christ to ask him to help us overcome our unbelief. See, in those times uh, when we are really wrestling, we have to go to the cross. We have to go to God's word. Don't feed the doubt. I don't know how many times I've heard Christians tell me things like this. They've said, I haven't been coming to church because I've been struggling spiritually. I haven't been coming to church because I'm struggling spiritually. I haven't taken communion because I've felt distant from God. I've needed a break from the word because I'm wrestling with doubts. Have you found yourself in those situations? I would urge you, if that's where you're at, throw yourself back into fellowship. Partake in the sacraments, take communion. This is a nourishing grace from God to sustain us, right? When your faith is weak, preach the gospel to yourself. And if you can't, then find somebody that can preach the gospel to you. Don't feed your doubt. Don't give the devil a foothold. Third, Christian belief is a gift of grace from God. Now, when the father of the demon-possessed boy asks Jesus to help him overcome his unbelief, he's actually, he's praying for divine intervention, right? He's asking that God would reach into his life and actually give him the faith needed to overcome this, this situation. This is faith he cannot conjure up by his own will, by his own volition. So we're still in verse 24. And what we see here is that There's a voluntary and really an involuntary aspect to Christian belief. Okay, it's kind of a a strange thing, but belief is nuanced. Belief is, is rather complex. There are things you don't have to decide to believe. And this is just the way belief works in general. If something is immediately available through my sense perception, I don't have to decide to believe it. It just is, right? My brain does that for me. If I sat here deliberating with myself whether this Bible in front of me is real or a figment of my imagination, you would think I was out of my mind, right? No sane person worries about that kind of stuff. It just is, it's is the way it is. But if you were to tell me that there's an invisible pink unicorn flying about the room right now and that only people under the age of 10 can see it or, or something like that, you're going to have to give me a pretty darn good argument if I'm going to adopt that position as as the truth, right? So what I'm trying to illustrate here is that there's a difference between simple belief and then intellectual acceptance of a proposition. Belief is generally involuntary, it just happens. It's a natural response. Acceptance, on the other hand, is something that we have to wrestle with. We have to deliberate. And I'm not just asking you to take my word for it here, okay? This is Mark chapter nine. I think Mark is really illustrating that faith is a kind of symbiosis, a convergence of something God gives us and something we're asked to bring into that relationship as well. It's a complex, nuanced kind of thing. So the father of the demon-possessed boy has accepted certain things about Jesus based simply on what he's heard. He's heard the stories. Maybe he's even seen a few miracles. He's had to wrestle with what he's heard about Jesus and come to a conclusion. But he also recognizes that there's something missing, something he cannot conjure up on his own. Whether he sees it clearly or not, he is asking that God would bestow this gift of belief on him according to his sovereign grace that God would give him something he knows that he cannot give himself. So verse 24 is about God's grace. It really is about God's sovereign grace. Not only has Jesus made the sacrifice necessary for us to be saved from our sin, he's gone a step further and actually given us the faith necessary to receive that gracious gift. And until we recognize how helpless we are, we will simply be unable to come to Christ, right? Until by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, we recognize the limits of our belief and throw ourselves at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and plead that God in his mercy would give us faith, we're never truly going to know him. Faith has to come from God. Now, you might find yourself coming to Jesus the way the man in this story came to Jesus. Doubt mixed with fear, mixed with some desperation, maybe some anxiety, anguished belief, hopeful longing, cautious anticipation, these sorts of things. But understand that expressions of despair and anguish are not the same as expressions of doubt in Scripture. When the psalmist cries out, to God in frustration and agony, it's not because he doubts, it's actually because he believes. See, we can't be frustrated with something we fundamentally don't believe in. I don't believe in God and I hate him, that that sort of thing. It doesn't work. Anguish in the face of God is, is sometimes an expression of belief. When we express frustration toward God, often this is because we know by faith that God is supposed to be a certain way. And when we don't perceive him acting the way we expect him to act, doing the things we think he's supposed to do, we can get frustrated, desperate, like the father of this poor, sick child. So when the prophets cry out, God, where are you? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? How long, O Lord? When will you redeem your people? You see this language throughout the Old Testament. I don't think these men are doubting God. They may actually be saying, I know by faith you're good, but I'm just not seeing your goodness in the ways that I expect. I know by faith that you're loving. I'm just not experiencing your love in the way that I want. I know by faith you've called me to persevere. I just can't see a way forward right now. I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Belief can be a messy, anguished kind of thing. But don't be afraid to bring that mess to Jesus Christ. Our mess of sin and rebellion, this is what has separated us from God when we fell dead in the Garden of Eden. But the mess of the cross, the violence of the cross, is what God has used to take our sin, to take our shame, and to restore us to life everlasting, right? God in his mercy and his compassion, he wants to fortify our belief and he wants to vanquish our doubt. He's calling us out of doubt into belief. And if we really wanna know him, I think we need to get better at at this prayer. I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We do confess that at times we live in anguished belief. Um, Our belief wanes, Uh, we wrestle with doubts. Lord, we wanna come before you honest about those challenges, those things in our our minds and our hearts. But Lord, we ask you to help us overcome our unbelief. Show us the way of faith. Lord, And we can't do it on our own, give us that faith reach into our hearts by your grace and transform us. Help us. Help us to be a light to the people around us who may be struggling with doubt. Help us to be a light to the community, to this community, people living in agnosticism, people who may never have really given it much thought. Lord, help us to point people to the truth of the gospel that by your grace you sent Jesus Christ as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice, so that if we have faith in him, we will live. Help us to live in that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.